If you have your Bible or the uh, scripture insert in the bulletin, turn to the Hebrews 13 passage. Uh, we're just going to read two verses this morning, very, very short reading. Uh, but this is going to actually wrap up this part of the journey through Hebrews, uh, this uh, four-part series on the different priorities of the church. Uh, new year, we're going to try to hit the reset button and, and understand what God wants to have as our priorities as a community, as a body together. Uh, this morning, we're going to see prayer is one of the great priorities of the church. Let's hear verses 18 and 19. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. This is God's word. So we've, we've seen it. You might remember the, the first three priorities we looked at. The, the first one was worship. The church is about worship. Uh, the number one answer that we should give as to why we come here is God, right? That's the whole point. And that's what worship is about. It's not primarily about us or how it makes us feel, although there's plenty of collateral benefits that each of us get by worshiping God. The, the main reason why we do it is for His glory, for His honor. He deserves to have His people worship Him. Uh, secondly, we saw that we're to be a community of care. You know, God is someone who is constantly caring for us. He's a generous God, always giving, giving, giving. And uh, if we're going to be his family, we've got to learn how to care for each other well, how to open wide the doors of our church and of our homes uh, to care for not only the people that are already here, but also the people in our community who are yet far away from God. And then last week we saw gather and build, or, or formation was a, a major priority, is a major priority of the church. Uh, we don't come here primarily to celebrate ourselves or to be affirmed. Uh, we come here first to be formed, to be shaped by God. Well, this morning we're going to look at this one. Uh, we get together and we are a church because we're called to pray. And I think uh, this answer is one probably maybe besides worship. It's probably the most obvious of the four. Uh, if I said to you, hey, the church exists to pray, most of you would probably respond, duh, right? <laughs> of course, right? I mean, if you did a word association with people and you just gave them the word church, I guarantee you one of the first words that survey would say, uh, people say is pray. Uh, you go there to pray. You go there to talk to God. In fact, I, I read a uh, some research from the Pew Foundation or the Pew Institute, whatever they're called, Pew something, right? Pew Association, however they like to go, uh, talking about how often Americans pray. And it was very actually surprising to me because five, out, if you have 10 Americans, like if, if 10 of us were lined up here or 10 of, of people from our community were lined up this morning, five of them would say they pray every day, at least once a day. Uh, two more would say they pray at least once a week. That's pretty good. And then one more would say they pray at least monthly. So eight out of the ten would say on some kind of regular basis they're praying. Uh, two of them, only two of them out of, out of ten Americans would say, I never ever pray, almost never at least. I don't even think about praying. Is that higher than maybe you imagined? Uh, I know it was higher than I imagined. Uh, but I, as I began to think about that, at first I was like, wow, yeah, okay, America may be better than we thought. Then I quickly remembered, just because we pray, does that mean we understand what we're doing? 
Think about that. Just because someone prays, do they really understand what they're doing? And this is maybe even what might shock you, maybe even offend you. Just because someone prays, does that mean their prayers are worth anything? That's hard to hear. But the Bible's pretty clear, right? Sometimes, just like worship, sometimes prayer can be worthless. That's a shocking thing to say. But I think that we can see that from not only these two verses, but we can see it throughout the entire Bible. Not every prayer is a prayer heard by God. And when a prayer is not heard by God, obviously, right, that prayer is, worth, is not worth much. That prayer is not very effective. Uh, not every prayer is approved by God. And sometimes God hears, praise the Lord. Sometimes he hears prayers that he doesn't even approve of fully. <laughs> he does. But nevertheless, if a prayer is not approved by God, it doesn't mean it's very worthy. Uh, here in these two verses, which seem like two uh, throwaway lines at the end of the letter, it's almost like the writer is just saying, sincerely yours. Your pastor, right? These are just, I mean, when you say pray for me, sometimes that's just a way of saying thank you for coming, right? (laughs) Uh, Have a good day. Uh, I'll see you soon. It's just a throwaway line. I don't think these are throwaway lines here. This is a leader of the church who is saying genuinely from his heart, I need you to pray for me. We need you to pray for us. Uh, What he's showing us here is there is a way for prayer to not only be acceptable to God, but very, very effective in the life of the church. And and one of the the ways that we kind of get a glimpse of that is by understanding that prayer is not just simply an individual pursuit. That's what these verses show us. Prayer is not just about what you do personally for your own personal relationship with God when you're alone. It's certainly about that. You should pray alone. In fact, if you only pray in public and never alone, that kind of shows maybe your public prayers are not very genuine, right? But listen to what one uh, old pastor said. Whoever refuses to pray in the holy assembly of the godly in the church knows not what it is to pray individually or in a secret spot or at home. If you don't pray with the church, how do you know how to pray? If we don't pray together, how do you make it through times of your life where you feel like you can't pray? Think about that. And so if you look at your bulletin, there are really three lessons that we can learn from these seemingly throwaway lines. Uh, We're going to learn the why of prayer, the what of prayer, and the how of prayer this morning, together as a church. So how to pray together, why we pray together, what we're supposed to pray together. And we're going to see three big ideas uh, as we answer those questions. You can see it in your, your bulletin. Prayer is breathing. Prayer is standing. And prayer is longing. Prayer is breathing, prayer is standing, and prayer is longing. First of all, prayer is breathing. Why do we pray with and for one another? Why would that old pastor say, if you refuse to pray in the assembly, you're not going to know how to pray when you're alone? Why would he say that? Well, it's because prayer, if you think about this, prayer is designed by God to be a kind of respiratory system of the church. Or, Or you could call it a circulatory system, one or the other. Both of those systems are very important, right? We have a nurse up here, but I don't think you have to be a nurse to recognize that breathing is very essential to life. Oxygen in the blood is very essential. Uh, You also don't have to be a nurse to recognize blood flow through all the different parts of the body is very essential. When you have a blockage somewhere in the respiratory system or a blockage somewhere in the blood system, what do you have? 
a, a quick, yeah, stroke, a, a quick trip to the hospital for something serious, right? When one of those two things breaks down. Uh, one of my dear friends right now, uh, Dave, you guys may not know Dave, he's a fellow pastor, uh, pastors up at a church on Pipkin Road, one of the churches in our presbytery, is in the hospital right now because of coronavirus. He doesn't have enough oxygen in his blood. And so he's been on a, a respirator of some kind for about a week, and they say he's going to be in there two more weeks on oxygen treatments. Pray for Dave. But what that shows you, and what really the whole coronavirus shows, is how scary it is when breathing gets cut off in some way. Well, Martin Luther, a great uh, reformer, one of the great leaders of the church history, said this, prayer is like breathing for the Christian. Prayer is like breathing. Uh, you can't expect to be alive physically if you don't breathe, right? <laughs> you can't expect that. You, you, you need to be in the hospital if you're having trouble breathing. Well, in the same way, an individual Christian and a church, if we're not praying, needs to be in the hospital. Uh, and a church that really doesn't pray together, doesn't know how to pray together well, is definitely not a healthy church. And one of the things I've said over and over, you may be tired of hearing me say it, uh, is that in 2021, I, wanna not, I don't want to be a church that's a small church trying to become a big church. I want to be a small church trying to become a healthy church. And one of the most important aspects of being healthy, as Martin Luther says, is learning how to pray. That's why the writer here in verses 18 at the beginning and in verse 19 is urging those people that he is leading in the church to pray for him and to pray for the other people who are, who are leading and serving as, as part of the church's work. He says there in verse 18, pray for us. It's a simple statement, but it, it shows the importance not just of individual private prayer, but of learning how to lean on one another in prayer. I pray for you, you pray for me. We pray together. Together we go before the Heavenly Father's throne and ask for things that are according to His will. When I don't understand what God's will is, maybe you might. And so your prayer might be trump my prayer. <laughs> and sometimes my prayer may trump your prayer, right? It's a wonderful thing, this whole you know, uh, give and take, this circulatory system of prayer. In verse 19, he makes it clear it's urgent. It's not just something small and throw away. It's something that if you don't do it, you need to be in the spiritual hospital. I particularly urge you, he says, to pray for us. I particularly urge you. It's necessary for you to pray for us and for us to pray for you so that we may be restored back together soon. What he's teaching us here is something that the Bible throughout teaches. So much in the Christian life hinges on prayer, whether we like it or not. So much in God's design hinges on prayer. Uh, God, of course, is in control of everything. We believe that. We believe God has a plan, and God is working out that plan infallibly, without fail, throughout history. And yet, did you know this? Part of God's plan to get things done is to get them done through the prayers of people. Did you know that? Part of God's plan to get things done in your life and mine and in our church is through prayer. Uh, God says things like this, the famous verse in, in uh, 2 Chronicles. If my people pray, maybe it's in 1 Chronicles, I can't remember. At any rate, it's in chapter 7 of one of them. <laughs> if my people pray and humble themselves, I will turn and heal their land. Right? If they pray. Implication. If my people don't pray... I won't turn, 
and I will not heal their land. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. James, his brother, turns around and says, you have not because you ask not. If you don't seek, you won't find. If you don't knock, the door won't be open to you. God has placed so much in prayer. He's chosen to work mighty things out in the world through the prayers of his people. Here's just one example. I don't know anyone, I don't know anybody, not a single person who, who has become a Christian who wasn't prayed for by somebody to become a Christian. Do you know anybody like that? I don't know a single person who's become a Christian, who somebody didn't pray for that they would become a Christian. And I've talked to other people, and and they agree that in their long history as Christians, that they see the same thing happening. Well, guess what? Praying for and with one another. It's not just you praying for yourself, because people who aren't Christians don't pray that they would become Christians. Right? I mean, I think that's probably the most obvious uh, example of what we're talking about. Somebody who doesn't yet see the value of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness and what it would mean to have a relationship with God, that they don't see the value of that, of course they're not going to long for it. Of course they're not going to ask for it. And so look what God has done. He has, he has made the salvation of our soul's hinge on somebody else's prayer in that very key moment. Well, then extend that out to all the other moments of your life where you have not known what to pray for. I'm sure there are things in every one of our lives that we don't even know God did for us, not because we asked for it, but because somebody else did. And we don't even know it. Can you, can you, I mean, imagine that. All the different things, maybe they happened. The times that God spared your life because somebody prayed. The times that you received a blessing you didn't even know to ask for. But somebody, the Bible says, interceded. That means that they came in between you and God. And they asked, they filled the gap between you and God and asked for what you couldn't ask for. How many times have you not felt like praying in your life? How many times have you felt like you weren't worthy to pray? Or maybe you, you know, all your prayers were just bouncing off the ceiling and smacking you right back in the face like an insult. How many times have you felt that way? All of us have felt that way at times. Guess what? God has appointed the body to pray for us and carry us in those moments. The Bible says not only does God give us the Holy Spirit to help us when we're weak to pray, but he gives us each other. I love this story. Uh, One time Jesus was uh, teaching in a house. It was in Simon Peter's house in Capernaum. And there was a man who was lame who obviously could not get to Jesus on his own because he was lame, right? Remember what his friends did? They carried him. They couldn't get in through the door because it was too crowded in the room. And so they, I'm sure, the owner, I'm sure Simon Peter loved that they did this. They dug a hole in his roof, right? They, they removed the tiles and they let him down on a mat right in front of Jesus. And you know what Jesus says? He healed him because of their faith. That's what it says. Because of their faith, he got healed. And he even received in that moment the gift of forgiveness. Not because he had some kind of strong faith, because he didn't. Not because he could run to Jesus in his trouble, because he clearly could not. It was because friends picked him up when he couldn't pick himself up and carried him to Jesus and pled with Jesus that he would work the thing that only he could work. 
I wonder this morning, do you recognize what it means to pray together and why it is that that writer, that old pastor would say, if you don't pray with the church, you don't even know how to pray. You don't know the first thing about prayer. If you're not formed by this circulatory system where each of us are different parts of the body, but God's grace comes from me to you through my prayers for you. God's grace gets expressed to you because I pray for you or because you pray for me. God's grace gets to me and God's grace gets expressed to me because Kevin and Clint and others of you pray for me. Right? Isn't that amazing? And so I wonder, when you ask somebody, pray for me, like the writer does here, do you really mean it? Or is it just a way of saying, sincerely yours? <laughs> is it just a, you know, a southern nice thing to say, like, y'all come back now, right? <laughs> Which really doesn't mean come back. It just means that's what I'm supposed to say. R- really don't come back, but y'all come back, right? <laughs> is it southern nice for us to just say, pray for me? Or do we really mean, hey... I need God's grace in a way that I don't even know. Pray for me. Because you may have something that I don't have. You may have some insight that God has given you that he means for me to receive from you. How about this? When somebody asks you to pray for them, do you really take it seriously? I mean, all of us are guilty probably of this within a church setting of being asked to pray for somebody millions of times. And we say, yeah, I'll pray for you. And, you know, we do not pray for it. Like, we forget. And, and we mean well, but we forget to do it. All I wonder, hopefully thinking about these verses would, would help us remember. I particularly urge you, he says, to pray. When someone asks you to pray, you're being called onto the front lines with the Lord for somebody who can't make it to the front lines themselves for some reason. You're being given that precious opportunity. Don't walk there, run there. Run to the throne and pray for that person. That's the first thing. Prayer is breathing. you got to do it. That's why we do it. Now, secondly, prayer is standing. And here he helps us understand the how of prayer together. Prayer is standing. Look at verse 18, uh, the second part of that verse. He says, we are sure. We are sure. Uh, the author here is going to go on to, to describe to us his very unique confidence. He has a unique confidence. He has a, a, an assurance that, that's the basis of his prayers that is unlike any other assurance in life. We are sure, he says, that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. That's the reason why he says, pray for me. If, in fact, if you have an ESV or a New King James Version or something besides the NIV, which is what I'm reading out of, it actually keeps the word there, which is really in the original, the word for. Pray for us for we are sure. Uh, pray for us because we are sure of the following things. In other words, the basis of prayer is always in the Bible, assurance. And when I said earlier, prayer can sometimes be worthless. Uh, prayer sometimes is not heard by God. It's not acceptable to God. It's because prayer lacks the basic confidence that this passage describes. Now, before, we, before you kind of go down a wrong trail, because I know that when I say that, you could take that in a lot of wrong ways. What he's not saying is, pray for us because we've proved ourselves worthy of prayers. That's not what he's saying, and I'll prove it to you in just a second. He's not saying, I'm good enough for you to pray for me, so pray for me. Neither is he saying, and neither should you think, 
the only reason God hears prayer is because we have kind of some kind of superhuman assurance behind it. As if, you know, if you believe hard enough, God will do whatever you ask, but if you don't believe, he won't. That's not what it's saying either. And I could prove that too, but I'm not going to prove that one today because that will take us down too many rabbit trails. I'm just going to prove the first one. He's not saying, hey, I've got a good conscience, meaning I'm a good person. I've been a good boy, so pray for me. He's not saying, hey, I desire to live honorably in every way. In other words, I'm, I'm promising to live a better life going forward, therefore pray for me. No, he's actually saying, pray for me because Jesus is trustworthy. Let me show you. In the book of Hebrews itself, look over to Hebrews chapter 9. If you have your Bible, turn uh, to chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Because he tells us there what that good conscience really is and what it comes from. In Hebrews, good conscience doesn't mean, man, I've been a good boy, and so I deserve prayer, or I've been a good girl and deserve prayer. Look at what it says. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, talking about Old Testament sacrifices, sprinkled on those who are ceremonial, ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. That's the way it worked in the Old Testament. The, the sacrifice was made, and you became ceremonially clean to come into the temple. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? That's what he means by good conscience. He's not saying pray for me because I'm a good person. He's saying pray for me because Jesus is good. Jesus has offered himself up unblemished throughout his obedient life for me. Jesus offered himself up on the cross for me unblemished so that his sprinkled blood might cleanse my conscience so that I might be set free from dead works to serve the living God. Look over at um, Hebrews chapter 10 as well. And this is another one, verses 19 through 22 in chapter 10. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, by what? Not by my good record, right? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let's draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see it? The writer here has a unique, uncommon assurance, which is an uncommon assurance that you and I can have as well. There used to be two old, I think it's two different songs that we used to sing when I was a kid in church. They're kind of country gospel songs. What can wash away my sins? Was one of them asked. What can wash away my sins? What was the answer? Nothing, Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's Hebrews in a nutshell, right? That's the whole book. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There was another gospel song we used to sing. Are you washed? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb, in the soul cleansing? Well, that's two different songs, right? Or is that one song? Maybe y'all can think about it and get back to me. I think it's two different songs. What can wash away my sins? Only the blood of Jesus. Are you washed in the blood, the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? That's what this is asking. The only way to pray um, in in an acceptable manner, the only way to pray in an effective and um, 
um, uh, I don't know, I'm searching for the word, having a hard time, sorry. The only way to pray in a, in, a, in a manner that actually makes it the circulatory system of the church, that's a roundabout way to say what I was trying to say, the only way to do that is to have it cleansed and made acceptable by the blood of Jesus. It's a little bit like this. In, in life, a legal relationship grants you privileges, Right? When you're married to somebody or, or, or when you're the son or daughter of somebody, for example, you can visit them in the hospital when other people can't, right? Maybe not right now, but usually you can. You have a certain kind of access, a certain kind of privilege. What, what the writer here is saying is, pray for me. Why? Because I have that relational privilege based on a legal relationship that I have through Jesus Christ. So the question really for each and every one of us is, are we washed in the blood of the Lamb? If you're a part of the church, but you've never been washed in the blood of the Lamb, then in the circulatory or respiratory system of the church, you're a blockage. You're blocking the flow of the grace of God that's trying to get throughout all this whole body. What what do you need? You need to be plunged in the soul-cleansing blood. You need to give up on your desire to cleanse yourself. You've got to give up on your desire to cleanse yourself. There are two things that make prayer worthless. There's a lack of confidence, which says, why in the world would God ever listen to me? But then there's also a self-confidence that says, of course God will listen to me. I'm good enough. I've been basically a good boy, a good girl. I've been a good person. Both of those kill the, wor- the worthiness of prayer and-, and render prayer mute. It's like the Pharisee who said, oh, God, thank you that I am not like the other men. And Jesus said God didn't hear that man's prayer. He said that. God didn't hear it. It was a worthless prayer because it was self-confident. What the writer here has is Christ confidence, covenant confidence, confidence in a relationship that Jesus has formed between him and God, that through his life, death, and resurrection, he cleansed him of all his sins. And by his spirit poured out and by the working out of his kingdom purpose in the world, he is actually changing him to become a new kind of person. A person who wants to live an honorable life, it says, in all things. That's where you're going to get your confidence to pray, not from some kind of self-help. All of us have experienced the tension of this, I think. I mean, do you know the pain of a guilty conscience? Do you know that? I know I know that of how guilt and shame and condemnation can weigh on the heart and how almost nothing, can it seems like, can get it out. That'll keep you from prayer, or at least from worthy prayer, like nothing else. Because it'll make you either avoid praying because you're too afraid, or it'll make you try to make excuses and build your own self-confidence, you know? I mean, yeah, I've done those other things, but look at all the good things I've done, God, so you should hear me because of those things. Uh, but before I was a... A pastor, I was an English teacher, and I was an English major in college, and so I really, one of the things I love is, is the plays of Shakespeare, and there's one, uh, my favorite play is Macbeth, and there's a scene in there where Lady Macbeth, who has committed murder, uh, shows herself to be guilty because in the night she gets up and sleepwalks, and while she's sleepwalking, she's talking out loud, and her servants hear her uh, confessing to the murder. And what she's doing, I'll never, I'll never forget this scene. She's over there, she's rubbing her hands feverishly. Shakespeare says for 15 minutes, she's just rubbing her hands. And over and over, she's saying, out, out spot, out damned spot. 
Because on her hand, she thinks there's blood. You know, she sees the blood in her dream. Out spot. She's trying to rub that spot out. Will these hands never be clean, she says. And she reaches down and smells her hands. Oh, it smells like blood. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. What was that scene teaching us? You can not solve the problem of a guilty conscience. You can't do it. If you do it waking, it'll get you sleeping. Right? If it doesn't get you sleeping, it'll get you waking. It'll hunt you down. And that's actually the way God designed it. Because one day we're going to stand before something a lot greater than our conscience. We're going to stand before him. And he knows even more than our conscience knows, right? And so God trains us now with the ruthlessness of a conscience so that we'll be ready to stand with him then. And what this is saying is the only way to stand with him then or now, the only way to get the spot out, that spot that will damn you, as, as Lady Macbeth says, the only way to get it out is to have the blood of Jesus cleanse it out and wash it out. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That's, prayer is standing on that. Your prayer shouldn't be deflated by guilt. Your prayer shouldn't be overinflated with pride. It should be rock-solid standing on the rock of Jesus. That's the only place to offer prayer. Now, lastly, this morning, prayer is longing. This answers the what of prayer. what, What are we supposed to pray for together? Look at verse 19 again. I particularly urge you, he says, to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. He's asking them specifically that he would be able to return back to them in person. Now, now we know something about what it's like to be separated from people in person. <laughs> in some ways, we're tasting the fruit of, fruit of it right now. I mean, as some of you watching online are not able to be here with us still. We know how that feels. We don't know what was going on at the time and, and why he was separated from the people he was writing to, but for some reason, he was separated. And it's very, very clear he doesn't believe he can solve the problem. He he doesn't believe he's the one that can get unseparated. Uh, More than likely, based on what we know about the writers of the New Testament, he was in jail. Because that's where they tended to be when they were writing letters, right? (laughs) Uh, There was a lot of jailing going on of the apostles uh, for their faith. So more than likely, he was locked up under lock and key. There's nothing he could do. And so what does he urge? Pray. Here's the lesson. We have to learn how to pray not for things that we can do without God or that we think we can do without God, even though there really is nothing we can do without God. we got to learn how to pray for the things we know we can't do without God. we got to be like the friends of the lame man who bring their lame friend on a bed, on a stretcher to the Savior, depending on him to work his wonder-working power in a situation that we clearly cannot measure up to. What should we pray for? We should pray for bold things, God-sized things, not me-sized things. How should we pray? We should pray boldly and shamelessly. Oh God, get me out of jail, is what he's probably saying there. Pray that God would spring me loose from the Roman prison, which Roman prisons were particularly tough prisons to spring from, right? We know that. But God can do it. And so there are many things all the time in our life. There are many things as a community that we face that we know there is absolutely no way we're going to find our way out of it. Well, guess what? That's the perfect opportunity for the circulatory system of the church to take over, for the respiratory system of the church to take over. Sometimes you might not be the one who's been given the gift of faith to pray for that thing, 
But praise God, somebody else in the church is going to be given the gift of faith. But your turn is going to get called. Right? At some point, you're going to be the one that God says, I want you to pray for that. Start praying. And I can tell you, even just this year, we've seen God do that in our church. When we were homeless, didn't have a place to meet for worship, didn't know whether we were going to really kind of ever meet again, right? Or, or you know, when that would be, or if we would last that long, <laughs> we started praying. Some of y'all got the gift of prayer even better than I had about that. And you prayed, and look where we're at. Not because of us, because of God, right? Um, just to tell you a really recent one, last week I urged you to pray for Alex Frost. He was in a bad, bad way in the hospital. I mean, really serious. God spared Alex's life this week. He's out of hospital. Um, he was on a ventilator, y'all. I mean, it wasn't COVID, but, but he was on a ventilator, and it was not very good. It was trending in a very bad direction. God raised him up because of the prayers of God's people passing back and forth among us. Thank you for doing that. Know that if you didn't do it that time, do it next time. <laughs> If you didn't feel like, you know, very confident in doing that, pray for God to give you confidence. Right now as a church, we're praying for a number of other things. Join us. Every week, I don't know if you noticed, but at the end, uh, the, the closing prayer is a prayer of intercession where, where I'm trying to model for everybody and trying to lead us all in praying for various needs. Don't just zone out during that prayer. Participate. It's okay to say amen out loud during the prayer or after the prayer in order to Get your heart to know you're participating in what's being said. It's amazing. God encourages us to be like children with their father when we come to our God. My kids don't have any shame asking me for things. Zero shame. And that's a good thing. I love it. And they also ask me for things I can't even do. Right? Because sometimes they don't know. Uh, And parents often have this response. Do you think money grows on trees? Right? (laughs) Because they're asking you for things that there's no way you could ever afford. Well, when we approach God, it's like that, except we're approaching a father who has no limits. Right? There is nothing he can't afford. Uh, There is nothing he's incapable of doing. He, He can do all his holy will. And so we come to God boldly, shamelessly. Don't, don't come avoiding dependence at all costs. That's a really, really American thing to do, I think. We hate the feeling of dependence, don't we? And it's probably not just American. It's probably just human. But I think we've made a particular art form of it <laughs> as Americans. Well, the feeling of dependence is actually the heart of prayer. How are you going to pray? How are we going to pray as a church if we don't learn how to depend? How to take the leap out in, over the open space of uncertainty to cling to the certainty of God's character. That's what it takes. Also, we love to hedge our bets. I mean, we hate being disappointed when we pray, and so we, we pray small little things, things that we know will happen anyway so that we can feel encouraged. I encourage us this year, let's pray for big things, God-sized things, things that if they were to happen, everybody would know God did it. Right? That's what we want to pray for. That's the kind of church we want to be. So think about this, and, and this is a question for you as an individual But it's also a question for us as a church. What's one thing you would like to change this year in your prayer life? What's one thing? Write it down. I encourage you today, write it down and pray that the Lord would do it. What's one thing as a church we want to change about our common prayer life together? 
I can tell you, I've already been thinking about this and I've been working on it. And you may have noticed, I mean, I'm trying to infuse more prayer into the worship service. Trying to, trying to emphasize prayer as what we do together more. We're doing our monthly prayer meetings and we're also doing the Hope Course on Sunday nights where we pray. We don't just come in and teach, we pray before we teach and after we teach. Why? Prayer is the heartbeat, the respiratory system of the body of Christ. What one thing would you want to see God change in your prayer life this year? 